Greetings. If you have your Bibles or maybe something on your phone you could look at, scriptures on your phone, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22. We'll be reading verses 7 through 20 in Jesus' name. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the disciples, apostles, with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten it, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Heavenly Father, pray that you would give us your spirit to be our teacher tonight and guide us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It is once again, it's time of the Passover. The Jewish people had been celebrating this feast for about 15 centuries. In Exodus 12, we read about the Passover that occurred. It was the 14th day of the first month. A male lamb was selected on the 10th day. He was to be one year old and without blemish. One lamb was selected for each household. And the lamb was to be killed at twilight on the 14th day. And some of the blood was to be put on the doorposts, one on each side and one on the lentil on the top. That night, God slayed the firstborn of every Egyptian household, but he spared the Hebrews. And when the Lord saw the blood on the door, the doorposts and the lintel, he passed over that door. Now this was the tenth and final plague that God had brought upon the Egyptians. And they were free. They were free from their bondage. God was keeping his promise, the promise that he had made to them back in the time of Abraham, that their children would live in the land of Canaan, and it would be their inheritance forever. Now nearly 15 centuries, 14-some hundred years, we see that the fulfillment of the Passover has happened. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. God can say to us, when I see his blood, I will pass over you. God had provided a lamb for himself. Like the Passover lamb, Jesus was a mature male. He was about 30 years old. He was without sin. The Bible tells us in several places he was unblemished like the lamb. None of his bones were broken. That was one of the requirements. I didn't tell you that, but it was. His sacrifice delivered us from bondage of sin and death, and he has freed us from our sins by his blood. We see in Exodus 12 that it wasn't enough for the Passover lamb to be slain. In order for God to pass over them, the blood had to be applied to the doorposts and the lintel. And the question for us tonight, for each one of you, my question is, has the blood of Christ been applied to you, to your lives, to your doorposts? I could maybe stop the sermon now. That's probably a little sermonette right there. But let's take a look at the events of that supper. Let's look a little closer. I want to suggest in verses 8 through 12 that we see that God, that Jesus, is sovereign over history. That he controls the events of time. He is willing to lay down his life. And he will do it in his time. He makes all the arrangements for the feast. None of the disciples knew where they would have the feast. And it's very likely that Jesus concealed these plans for the Passover meal. And he did it probably because he wanted to spend his time with them in peace. He knew that Judas would betray him that night. But he had much to do, much to say before that would happen. So he sends Peter and John into the city. These are two of the three of his inner trusted inner circle. He sends them into the city. They have no clue where they're going. And maybe this bothered them, or perhaps they were becoming accustomed to such things. But And had it not been Jesus, maybe they would have thought different about following his instructions. But they did. In verse 10, he instructs them to follow a man carrying a jar. Now, in those days, women carried jars, pictures, pitchers full of water. Men would carry water in, in skins, typically. So it was a peculiar thing that, that to see a man carrying a jar, he would, he would stand out. So ultimately, this man would lead them to the place where they would prepare the Passover, to the upper room. It's very likely the same, that this is the same upper room that would be their sanctuary in the days ahead. The way he directs his disciples to the room for the Passover seems to speak of his omnipotence, his omniscience. It is doubtful that he had been able to make secret plans away from public view, away from his disciples. In a similar way, a few days earlier, may you recall, you probably talked about it last week, on, on the day of the selection of the lamb, he had directed two of his disciples to get 
the colt on which he would ride into Jerusalem. You can read that in Luke 19. On that day, Jesus rode in the city through the eastern gate and he fulfilled messianic prophecy of Zechariah. And he presented himself as the Lamb of God. In verses 14 through 16, I want to suggest that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He prepares the disciples for what's to come. It says that, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the disciples were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is fully aware that his suffering and death is imminent. John 13, chapter 1, or verse 1, chapter 13, says that he knew that his hour had come. In recent days, he had been speaking about the suffering that lie ahead. In Luke 12, he said he had a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress, he said, until it is accomplished. In Luke 20, just a couple of chapters earlier, he compared himself to an heir of a vineyard, to the beloved son, who was killed by the tenants of that vineyard. In Mark 14, also in John 12, you can look that up. After Mary, the sister of Lazarus, had anointed his head and his feet with oil, Jesus announced that she has anointed his body beforehand for his burial. In John 12, Jesus says, this is in verses 27 28. You can look that one up. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice out of heaven came and said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. You'd think that, you know, they would understand. Jesus, what's going on? You're, you're going to die. You're... Although he'd been saying these things, the, the disciples didn't understand. So he had an intense desire, scriptures say, to fellowship with them at the Passover. He had so many things to do and say. Of course, uh, Jesus knew that he'd rise again. He'd still have a little bit of time, although we don't read in the scriptures a whole lot after his resurrection, of him teaching them. But he would have some time. But at minimum, though, he needed to prepare them for the shock that was going to be imminent. So put yourself in the place of Jesus. If you knew that your death were imminent, what would you do? What would you say to your loved ones? And what about Jesus' case? He wasn't just going to die. He, he was going to suffer a lot in the process. The amazing thing to me is that he had the psychological fortitude to care for his disciples in such a situation as this. It's, it, it baffles my mind. I know I couldn't do it. <laughs> and it speaks again that he is, he is more than a man. He is Almighty God. 
He is our wonderful counselor. Let's take a quick survey. Just I'll try to move fast. And what transpired on that evening? Luke doesn't give us very many details. Uh, so we have to look at John's account. And it's often called the upper room discourse, the events, all of his teachings from that evening. We see in John 13 that he washes their feet. He washes the feet of the disciples. Now, this act was a common element of just hospitality. It wasn't a particular thing that was unique to the Passover. But Jesus incorporated it into that evening. And it was typically performed by the lowest ranking person in the household, usually servants. So Jesus was setting the example of not only how to be a servant, but how they were to care and love for love each other. We see also there in that chapter, 13 of John, that he warned his disciples of the betrayal that was going to happen. He warns Peter as well. He warned Peter that Peter would deny him, but he encouraged him saying, you will recover from this and you will strengthen your the others, the other disciples. Jesus tells them in John 14 that he will go and prepare a place for them. He's going to make an addition on their father's house so they could be with him forever. He promises to send them the helper, we see. And finally, John 16, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So they would suffer incredible heartache, but their sorrow would be turned into ecstatic joy. As a mother, and I've, been, I've seen this four times now. <laughs> As a mother endures labor, she forgets the pain. And they will forget their suffering. After seeing the resurrected Lord, they will have courage to face anything that comes their way. Ultimately, they will be with Jesus even if they die. And they will be bold. They will ask the Father for all things in his name, knowing that he is omnipotent. Jesus concludes uh, that evening by praying for them. And we see it in the high priestly prayer. In verses 17 through 20, we see uh, something that's rather astounding. Jesus is the author of a new covenant. He institutes the new covenant. Says that he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Check the clock. I can't see it from here. <laughs> Got to worry about it. In these verses, we see that Jesus does something extraordinary. He institutes a new covenant. Now, before we consider what he did, let's review quickly the things that we know about the old covenant. I alluded to some of them earlier. In Genesis 12, we read that God's call, we read of God's call to Abraham, told him to leave Haran and to go to a place that he would show him. God promised to bless him and said that his offspring would form a great nation. In Genesis 15, God repeats this promise. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, in biblical times, covenants were ratified in blood. And typically, there would be both members uh, walking through dismembered animals in ratification of that covenant. This would signify the terms of their agreement and particularly the the penalty for breaking that covenant. They would, there would be sheeps, sheep or goats. They'd basically cut them in half, line them in a row, and walk through the blood. God instructs Abraham to cut several animals in half, and he lined them up into two rows opposite each other. And in Genesis 15, verses 12 through 18, we see that God himself, in the form of a smoking pot and flaming torch, passes between the pieces. He literally invokes a curse upon himself. If he would break the covenant, he would be like, like those animals. But we see also a peculiar thing, that Abraham, he doesn't walk between the pieces. God had actually promised to keep the covenant for both of them. Should Abraham not keep his end of the covenant, God would pay the price. The promise of the covenant was passed down through the generations. In keeping the covenant, Abraham's male offspring would be circumcised. God would establish his law, and various sacrifices would be made to atone for their sins. In Leviticus uh, 6, also in 29, we can read that Moses established daily sacrifices. There would be two lambs that would be sacrificed, one mid-morning, probably about 9 a.m., the other one at 3 p.m., mid-afternoon. In verses 17 through 19, we read that Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of it. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This cup was likely one of four that were in the Passover meal. Jesus looks far ahead 
to his second coming. He looks ahead to his second coming when the kingdom of God comes. And he's looking ahead to the marriage feast of the Lamb when he will celebrate with his bride. The scriptures say in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, the joy of seeing us being saved, the joy of, of us being freed from bondage, for it was that joy that enabled him to endure the cross. In verse 19, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He asks them to do this in remembrance of him, establishing a ritual which would remind them as often as they do it of his death. In John chapter 6, Jesus had referred to himself as the bread of life, which has come down from heaven. And he said, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Finally, in verse 20, we see Jesus taking the cup. Now, this is likely the third cup in the usual Passover ritual. This is the cup of redemption. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus essentially is making a marriage proposal at this point. To understand this, we need to look at the process of betrothal that was the custom of the day, the custom of the Galileans in that time. A young man, usually in his mid-twenties, would seek a bride. She was typically in her teens. After a period of courtship, an agreement would be written to capture the terms of the union. Witnesses would be present. Typically, they would gather at the gate of the city and make the declaration. There would be people around. And one of the things that they would agree to was the bride's price. as a payment that would serve two purposes. And one would be an insurance policy of sorts. If something would happen to the bridegroom, this would be money that could be used for the parents to help take care of take care of the bride and if not it would be something as, as some sort of compensation for for their daughter the loss of their daughter he's taking their daughter away from them the the engagement was typically sealed with a cup of wine the father the father would pour the cup. He would fill the cup. He would give it to the son. The young man would extend the cup to the young woman and exclaim, this is a new covenant in my blood that I offer to you. It was his way of saying, I love you and I'm willing to die for you. Now she had a choice. She could drink the cup. She could accept his invitation, she could agree to be his bride, or she could let the cup pass. Now, if she did accept his offer, the engagement process would begin. The young man would go and prepare a place for her. He would make an, an addition onto his father's house. They call them insulas. 
Typically, they would build a, around a courtyard. And at, at some point, if there got to be too many additions onto the father's house, there would have to be a point where son would break off and kind of start a new one. But he wouldn't return to get his bride until the father said he could go. So the father decided he had done enough, and it was prepared. It was suitable for his bride. Jesus extended the cup to his bride, the church, at the Last Supper. They had a choice, even though they probably didn't fully understand what this proposal would involve. And they took the cup. They drank it. They agreed. The church is betrothed. The new covenant, the new covenant was instituted. This was the birth of the church. It wasn't on Pentecost. It was this moment when the church was born. Today we have the same invitation. Jesus extends the cup to us. He wants us to be his bride. He calls each of us individually. Will you be his bride? Hopefully you already are. Probably most of you have drunk the cup. It's interesting to know that Jesus later refers to this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asks if it be possible for this cup to pass from him. I think Scott might have mentioned this part earlier this evening. Instead, he chose to drink that cup. He accepted the engagement. He paid for his bride. He paid for you, for each one of us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that we have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the final, ultimate lamb. He is sovereign over history. He showed that here tonight in this passage. He's he's a wonderful counselor. He's fulfilled all the requirements of the old covenant. And there's much we could say. I had cut a lot of things out of this message. I spared you. But you can search it. Search the scriptures. You probably know it better than me, a lot of these things, some of you. And he established a new covenant where we can be his bride. Amen.